Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing the federal seat of Lindsay, but first we'll be discussing the Liberal leadership spill that's been gripping the country this week. I'm joined by two guests today. My first guest is Elle Gibbs. Elle is a writer, a disability activist, and a former local government councillor in Western Sydney. Hello, Elle. Hi, Ben. My second guest is Stuart Jackson. Stuart is a lecturer in politics at the University of Sydney. Hello, Stuart. G'day, Ben and Elle. Uh, So the story of the week is the Liberal leadership spill in the federal parliament. We're recording on Wednesday night, so it's possible this story will have moved on by the time you're listening. No. Um, But it's, it's... (laughs) <laughs> it's the big story of the week. Um, so on Tuesday, uh, Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton challenged Malcolm Turnbull for the Liberal leadership. Uh, and in the end, the vote went 48 votes for Turnbull and 35 votes for Peter Dutton. Uh, but the fight isn't over with Dutton leaving the Cabinet and strong rumours that a second leadership spill could be held as early as tomorrow. Indeed. Uh, it was really interesting how many... Um uh, front benches voted for Dutton. I was surprised by a couple of them, and uh, it's been really interesting to see it's happened quite quickly. I don't think Malcolm was expecting quite as many people to support Dutton, which is because uh, Malcolm Turnbull called the spill uh, to try and get over the rumours and all of the fights that were going on. But uh, I think this has just been another chapter in some of the the kind of quite. Now, I mean, I find it slightly ludicrous uh, at this end of it, uh, after sort of 10 years of watching political parties eat themselves alive uh, and finding that, that Tutton could be our Prime Minister anytime soon. Um, it, it, yeah, it, it kind of makes me unable to find, find words, Stuart. And yet, and yet, you know, who have we had before? We had Tony Abbott, who everybody said, oh, he couldn't possibly be Prime Minister. We, uh, we think back to what, what could have been. We had Mark Latham as opposition leader, could have been Prime Minister. So oh, we, we think back to the, the kind of candidates that have ended up as leaders going into elections, and you're left... Well, what have we oh, missed? Oh, but even Rudd. You know, Rudd was the unlikeliest That's candidate right. for Prime Minister ever. And he did his own kind of little, uh, you know, essays in the monthly and a little bit of character kind of uh, revisionism yeah. before the 2007 election. So, I mean, this is certainly not... Actually, that, that does seem to be the difference, I've got to say. Peter Dutton hasn't done, like, books and articles. He hasn't done all the stuff that Prime Ministers seem to normally do now. That's true. Although he is starting to this week, he's kind of said, uh, "Oh, now he's now he's not a, not a minister anymore. He can smile and things like that." Which I just I didn't realise that was a prerequisite for being a minister that you weren't allowed to actually smile. He, you, you're right, Stuart. He seems to have done uh, a, a lot less preparation than other people have done when they have wanted to be PM. Uh, he seems to his kind of way of seeing himself as prime minister seems to come from that very right-wing media uh, bubble who all seem to think that uh, having Dutton as PM will fix things and that will fix the news poll despite any lack of actual evidence to support that. So something I find interesting is most of the recent cases of leadership spills, the challenger is someone who is seen as generally being popular. Now, that Mm. popularity doesn't necessarily uh, have a deep basis. It doesn't necessarily stick around. But there's some sense of them being popular. Latham was popular before things things went south. And and, uh, so was Kevin Rudd and Gillard and then Mm. Rudd again. And there was was always a sense that there would be a boost in the polls. 
Uh, maybe Tony Abbott was a bit more complicated, but he had <laughs> he had that level of support. And when Malcolm Turnbull replaced Tony Abbott, there was clearly a level of popularity that existed. Now, for most of those people, it doesn't stick around once they're actually in the job. There's a kind of a, a Schrodinger's Prime Minister thing there where we, we imagine, we, we project onto someone who isn't in that role that, oh, if they were leading the country, they would act in this particular way. But I don't think we see that in Dutton. Like, we don't have... There's no sense with Dutton that more progressive people look at him and go, well, maybe he could... Like, there there doesn't appear to be any sense that uh, he would be someone who would reach out and expand the base of the Or party. even that he's got a huge movement behind him, you know, that there is this sort of huge wave of conservative voters that have been, you know, are banging down the doors of Canberra saying, we want Dutton. Like, that's, I don't see that That's either. The, what Connie was saying. Conchetta Favanti Wells was saying that, in fact, yes, there's all these disenfranchised people, these disenfranchised conservatives who, you know, after the, the marriage equality vote, they were, they were being taken away. It's like... And there is actually a grain of truth in it. Uh, the grain of Jesus. truth. <clears throat> the grain of truth exists in Family First. Uh, family First in Victoria, of course, has ceased to exist, but they were polling two percent, and I can pull two, three percent. Where do those people go? Well, their members. Well, they go, isn't that they go to the Australian Conservatives? Isn't that where the, there's a fight on the right from these little micro parties? Not where their members went. Their members come into the Liberal Party. In Victoria? In Victoria, ah, as yes. I understand it. So this is where you start to see some of this uh, conservative edge within the party. And I think that one of the things you need to think about then is uh, what happens in opposition within the Liberal Party, certainly uh, post-Fraser. Um, right? You have to think, well, certainly post-Howard. And you think, well, you've had Downer and you've had Nelson. And you can think about the various leaders and going, girl... They haven't been spectacular, and they haven't been spectacular, pop, spectacularly popular. You have to also remember what happens. I mean, yes, it does apply to Labor. You know, why is you know, Beasley under threat or he loses the election? Not overly popular, but people like him because he's big and cuddly and whatever. But Simon Crane, mm-hmm. even though Labor was leading, but he was low in the polls, they ditched him. So it was a popularity contest. I think this, it's somehow, even though this might sound bizarre, a little more ideological when it comes to... Um, the Liberal Party, and certainly at the moment, it's a oh, clear yeah, I would agree with that ideological completely. edge to it now. Well, there's definitely an element that within the party room that uh, there are a lot of Conservative MPs who don't feel like the leadership, the Turnbull's leadership, is conservative enough for them. That is definitely a factor. But I do think it's interesting that uh, what are the opinion poll factors that exist on the outside world? Because they they clearly are a big factor always, and I do think. There is an element of people thinking someone like Peter Dutton will do a better job of heading off One Nation, heading off that right wing impact. But I just don't understand why they think that that will form them government. Like it's quite, a, it's 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 a different story in terms of appealing to the say, like let's be generous and say twenty percent of voters who have ex- like conservative beliefs of that that sort of hardline nature, who are you know anti same sex marriage, who are you would say you know, upset by the plebiscite, all of that kind of stuff, that is not enough to form government. So surely there's enough people within the Liberal Party who are kind of going, but this is not going to form us government and this is not going to win us the next election. Well, this is the John Hewson argument. I mean, he's mm. been there saying you don't form government by running no. off to, to grab hold of one nation. Well, what happens to it's all the It's the same argument the Labor makes about right. the Greens. Exactly. Yeah. So where do they go from here? I mean, that's the next question. Even if they think, and this is where I think the ideological warriors are saying, if we have control of the party, we'll have this big block right-wing party and we'll try and move politics to us. 
but you can't help getting the feeling that, you know, where will they go with this? They'll drift off to marginality? Yeah. Or if there's a split in the party, what will happen to them then? Well, they'll go and join Australian Conservatives, which might last another election or two, but that will be it. Or One Nation, or Catter's Party. I mean, most but again, it's not enough for them no. to form government. Like the Australian population, it consistently, like if you're just taking the Australian oh. election study, for example, they're not that conservative. Like it's kind of on, particularly on sort of public services and privatisation and some of those big kind of issues. They like public services and they like, you know, government owning stuff and they like having services that they can use. And those kind of things are not, <laughs> there's not a huge amount of population on the conservative side. Well, I wonder if um, if some of it is that the um, there's an expectation that they're going to lose and that there's a sense of, well, we'd rather strengthen our conservative position, get some things done while we're here or whatever. And I think that I think that is an element and it is clearly relevant that they think that um, Malcolm Turnbull can't win the election, which is not my interpretation of reading the polls. Like, he's down in the polls, mm. but he's not in any kind of unwinnable position mm. and there has been a trend towards... The coalition throughout this year. Um, I don't expect that trend to continue after this week, but <laughs> I, I think that that has been a factor. But there's clearly a sense of pessimism. But I do wonder. I think this is one of those uh, elect. The, this is one of those leadership spills like 2010, where 2010 they tried to make it about popularity and about winning the mm. election, but it really was that they didn't like Kevin Rudd. They didn't trust him. They thought mm. the government was dysfunctional, and. Uh, as soon as he slipped a little bit in the polls to a point where he was no longer dominant in the polls, they were like, well, what's the point? So I think there is an element of that, which is this is not about, this is not about the broader electorate. This is what's about what's happening in Parliament and in Canberra. Um, and in the party as well. I think yeah. this is actually about what's happening inside the Liberal Party. And I think you're right about Victoria. There's been a huge shift towards the right in Victoria in particular, the same has happened in New South Wales. So there's been a a consistent trend on pre-selections at local and state level in New South Wales, as well as federal, to much more conservative MPs and mostly men. Uh, And that's been an interesting trend. And, and, you know, you're the professor, so you know more about other states than than I do. Is that that happening in Queensland? Yes, that's certainly... Well, Queensland... Don't want to say Queensland is Queensland, (laughs) but Queensland has been on a conservative trend for a little while. Particularly in the marriage of the Liberal and National parties Mm. has strengthened the conservative elements within the Liberal Party. The Liberal Party in Queensland was traditionally um, more centrist, and it was the National Party that were conservative. Uh, the Nationals up there would always complain that the LNP was actually a takeover of them by the Liberals, but actually it moved the, the two parties, certainly the Liberal Party, to the right. Mm-hmm. So it's become conservative there. Um, WA is on a conservative trend. Uh, it's like other states busily swallowing up IPAs, so people from the IPA, um, from the Christian right. Ian Goodenough, of mm-hmm. course, is West Australian, and he's very conservative. So and Andrew Hastie, you're just yeah. constantly picking them up. Um, so, so those kind of moderates, and particularly women in the Liberal Party, are just who were around 10 years ago and in the Howard years, uh, who really did say, you know, hold the line on things like, you know, are you for, are you eight, abortion, overseas aid, some of that kind of supposed softer but, you know, uh, moral issues, or the things that can some conservatives get very active about, and they seem to have been disappeared outside of the, 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 the current Liberal Party. Is that right? Or am I... Is that a, Correct assumption? Do you I think, think that element has certainly been weakened. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's an ongoing trend. The minister said when Ian McPhee retired years mm-hmm. ago now, they said, oh, well, you know, it's the end of the, the moderates or the left in, in the Liberal Party. So it's an ongoing trend. 
I mean, New South Wales has been drifting to the right, even though the moderates control the party, yes, essentially. The but mm-hmm. what you have also had is this constant push within the party to say, open up pre-selection to the members, knowing who turns up at, at yeah. meetings, which is the older, more conservative And that's members. why the moderates have been opposing that, particularly in New South Wales, yes. and kept saying... Uh, no, no, we don't want to do that because they know that the Conservatives have the numbers and the people who actually turn up and will vote. Well, that democratising push has been led by Tony Abbott, right? Yeah. Like that's been kind of what he's devoted his energy to now that he's no longer a, a Prime Minister or a Minister. Mm. I find it interesting that um, a lot of this has blown up around the issue of climate and energy mm. policy. Uh, that has been the, the focal point that has, has exposed these issues. And this isn't the first time, like this is the thing that also caused so much conflict in the Liberal Party in 2009. And uh, like, what do you think it says both about um, the dilemma for the Liberal Party in coming up with a sensible policy on climate change, uh, but also the fact that this is the issue that has possibly will bring down Malcolm Turnbull a second time? After 2009. It really is interesting how he hasn't been able to frame a conservative response to climate change. And I found that really interesting that he hasn't been able to find the language or the the persuasion to talk to his members and that kind of stuff. Because there is a conservative argument for climate action on climate change. And that he hasn't been able to get through and do that persuasion work that is part of politics uh, to the members of the Liberal Party. And it has meant that the people who say there is no such thing as climate change and therefore we don't need to do it and we should just have more public ownership of coal-fired power stations, which I just find astonishing in 2018... that he hasn't been able to do that, I've been really interested by, that, that, that for someone who has had so much um, capacity to persuade and to be eloquent and to have, you know, the words for the stuff, uh, that he hasn't been able to use that in, in either time, you know, either in 2009 or now, you know, about uh, finding a way to persuade people within his own party that uh, a conser- there is a conservative way to to address energy and climate. And so even last week when he was making those last minute compromises with Morrison and Dutton, I was really interested in that where it was like, we actually urgently need this this policy and like this energy policy is really important for lots and lots of things. Why are you treating it with so such callous sort of, oh, we can just change it at the last minute. And it just seemed mm-hmm. a really strange thing for him to do, given his capacity to be a political persuader. I'm not quite so surprised. I mean, consider what's been going on in the UK. The UK does have climate policies. I mean, at the end of the day, it was Margaret Thatcher who says we're all environmentalists now. But the Conservative Party there has been able to move on it, in part because there's a... a, a it's not, I was going to say inertia. It's the opposite of inertia. There's momentum on it, and it's continued even through the whole of, well, not Brexit, but it's certainly through the GFC and austerity. There's still been a sort of catch cry. Maybe it's around Cameron and his leadership at that time. The Brexiteers, however, are the conservative elements about old Britain. They're harking to a particular set of ideas that are very conservative in the sense that it's like this magical realm of old England. Um, even though they're, they're into adaptation, they do recognise that things change, and it isn't the 50s. 
What strikes me about Australia uh, is that we have a group of MPs, I mean, some of whom may have connections to the coal, you know, to the coal or fossil fuel industries, but there's plenty of others who seem to be buried or mired in a religious conservatism that's around, you know, but, but the earth is here for us to use and why don't we use it? What I can't understand, and actually genuinely can't understand, is why they haven't been able to pick up on adaptation. Mm -hmm. I mean, even people like Bjorn Lomborg have started talking adaptation. When you say about sort of the religious element, I find it really fascinating that 10 years ago, the, the argument around climate change or the conservative argument for not acting more quickly on climate change was, uh, was very much economics-based. It was about the cost of... of adaptation and not going too fast and and I think in a more sensible debate maybe that's still where people like Turnbull and Morrison would be where they'd be saying sure we want to act but let's not let's not get ahead of ourselves um, but instead you've had this element of treating it almost as a culture war issue mm -hmm. where uh, like you know coal is what has produced this great world we have and that kind of you know, regardless of the economics, we should be investing in coal because coal is great. Maybe there are some some politicians who have a vested interest uh, in it, but it's actually gone well beyond mm. that. There's an ideological commitment to not being renewable and not, and it, it, it no longer fits with, like the economics has changed mm. so much that frankly, uh, renewable energy is probably doesn't, like without government policy, will continue to rampage ahead. And so often we see we see low emissions reduction targets now that probably will be met with no government action mm. at all. Uh, but it's become this sort of catch cry of like preserving our way of life of coal mining and. And they keep talking about things like prices for individuals and for families and that kind of stuff. And what worries me is this lack of policy is meaning that basically people on low incomes and renters and that kind of stuff are going to completely miss out on mm. having renewable power or having access to cheap power and are going to be stuck subsidising the grid because they're not making good decisions about policy that are going to help people. And they keep talking about the economics for, we don't want this to impact on pensioners and you know people who are struggling to keep the lights on and pensioners who are in bed with the blankets. But they're not... The policy responses don't match that at all, and I suppose that frustrates me as a kind of like a traditional. Well, then you write the policy and do the submission, and you have the green paper, and you do it that way. And so I'm old-fashioned that way. And but it's it's that that's where the, the the rhetoric that they're talking about is not matched by the policies that they're proposing at all. So the policies yeah. aren't actually going to achieve what they're talking about, which is that stuff of like we can't let people uh, people are suffering so terribly with their electricity bills. Um, and that's where they say that's, that's the problem. But the policy that they're advocating isn't going to solve that. No, well, well, worse than that. Do you look back at the, the history of it, you actually realise that as they've been advocating these policies, up have been going the prices. It's actually had the reverse effect. But there was one thing I wanted to pick up on is, is if you look at the history of industrialisation you know, over the last two centuries, um, coal fired, if you like, coal fired the early part, but actually it was oil and then other um, products that fired the latter part. So even this this obsession with coal, you want to ask yourself, well, what are we actually harking back to? Is this industrial revolution stuff? And I think there's a, almost a mindset around, and I mentioned this before, around lights, keeping the lights on, which was one of those mantras that came through again and again. And it's something about the attachment to technological progress, but in its earliest forms, an understandable, more visceral form. Look, we need, we need a, you know, a degree in Western civilization. Stuart. 
Well, so 19th century. I wonder if one element with this is that uh, I feel like if, if it could be about the economics, it would be a lot easier for the Liberal Party to have a coherent policy and mm. be able to take this position. And where this started really was Tony Abbott taking a position of saying even a relatively moderate emissions trading scheme that had been compromised significantly to get Liberal votes, we can't accept it. Like, And I feel like that was a moment where it became a, less about economics and about sensible economic policy and an argument about what that is and more about I don't believe in climate change and I, I we can't possibly do this regardless of the merits and I don't think it's all about Tony Abbott I think it's he's symbolic or he's a he's a he's a figurehead for a movement and a way of thinking but I do think it's interesting that that's the moment where we started having this kind of inability to really move on climate change unless Labor and the Greens were entirely had total power themselves. Mm. I mean, even this policy has been called the NEG, you know, the National Energy Guarantee, and it's got this nothing about climate change in it unless no. you actually read it. And I think that the, the the kind of selling of that as not about climate change, really not about climate change, we're not talking about climate change, really not about climate change, has been um, completely deliberate. Mm. But I think has been a mistake because it has meant that it has allowed the cultural warriors to basically keep it in that frame rather than actually kind of taking a step back. I mean, I would be interested in seeing some current polling on where Australians sit around their beliefs in climate change because I reckon we're in, you know, like we were 10 years ago about the drought. I reckon people have really moved on this. I haven't heard an awful lot about uh, not believing in climate change and that kind of stuff for a long, long time. And I mean, I live in a regional-ish area and where there's a lot of people who are very confused about this stuff and quite angry and freaked out about it. And we're looking at a really, really shitty fire season and everybody mm. is really freaked out. And mm. I think the opportunity for politicians to act is there, but the neg was just not mm. it. From memory, the polling is, is showing... This, this, what's opened up is this, this group in the middle. You've got the group that says, yes, there is climate change and it's uh, anthropogenic. And then there's the, those that say, no, there is no such thing as climate change. It's not happening, the denialists. But there's a largest group in the middle that say, climate change is happening, but we don't really know why. Mm. Right? But it's recognising that climate change is occurring. Um, what I can't understand from the Liberal Party's perspective, and maybe it comes down to a, a question of leadership, and there hasn't been leadership within the party, when there could have been. Turnbull could have been the person with Frydenberg and Morrison or whoever else, could have provided leadership and said, we're going this way. And if you don't like it, you cross the floor, right? You show what you are. Right? And the Labor Party could say, well, we're going to wedge them, and it's playing politics. Mm. But that actually gives you an opportunity to say, we'll make a stand on good policy, right? as opposed to a stand on bad policy, which is not a stand at all because they've withdrawn yeah. it. Um, the, the company tax cuts went down you know, today as well. You know, third reading, it went down in the committee, actually, and it's like, wow, okay, that doesn't usually happen. Usually it goes down in second reading, but it's like, well, this is really interesting what's going on. But maybe leadership is the problem that's occurring at the moment. So let's let's come back to what's been happening today. So we've had this we've had this. So yeah, please catch me up. I've actually been at work, and so, so I haven't read a newspaper since lunchtime. So what has happened this afternoon? So we're kind of in this position right now where there's a lot of rumours going around about how people where people are standing. Last night we had a large number of ministers offer their resignations, uh, and almost all of them Turnbull uh, turned down those offers of resignation. So consider consider fear of anti Wells. Um, 
are resigned, as did Dutton, but everyone else is still back in the in the ministry. Uh, but it clearly indicates that Turnbull's position is very weak, and uh, his his approach appears to be to pretend that there there isn't any ongoing threat to his leadership. Uh, it does appear likely that there will be another spill at some point. It could be tomorrow. It could be in a few weeks' time. Uh, and then there there was also a spate of rumours about Scott Morrison. Of course, like these are all rumours we don't really know. But I, I'm wondering, like, what do you think this says about where we're going to be in terms of the next election? It, whether it's Dutton or whether it's Morrison or whether it's some kind of, you know, surviving Turnbull as leader. What do you think the next election is going to look like after this week? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm watching Morrison really closely. Uh, he's the person that I'm actually uh, keeping my eye on and uh, he's one to watch. Uh, watch what Morrison does and watch what Bishop does. Well, if you've been in a, in a black box, you won't have seen the, the picture, the, the, the press conference there when you have uh, uh, Morrison sort of putting his arm around you know, uh, <laughs> Turnbull saying, this is my leader. You'd have to think this has to have so many connotations. Um, when you've watched Morrison turn and turn about so many times as any people in New South Wales have been showing to me that is hilarious Uh, and you'd have to be thinking he's getting ready to put the knife oh he certainly is so so he is extremely as they call ambitious and has always wanted to be PM and I think he would be positioning himself as the compromise candidate Um, I think if Morrison becomes a leader that's a different story uh, and I think it's a different story in New South Wales and potentially in Queensland as well um, if Dutton became the leader, it was a disaster for them. I think that Dutton doesn't have support, particularly uh, in Victoria, uh, in New South Wales. Like, he doesn't have that support, that depth of support. And so I think that will be interesting. People will laugh at him. Like, people mm. have literally been laughing at, at the idea of Dutton as PM. I, th- I think it will generate... Um, I think there might be a dead cat bounce... You know, initially in the polls, maybe up 1%. Keeping in mind that two polls came out showing a collapse in support. Uh, So it might have a little bump, but I actually don't think it's going to lift it to, you know, 49%. And I think it's going to stay in the mid-40s. Now, they've been there before. Mm -hmm. I mean, Howard at various points has had that sort of problem. Um, So they could come back, but I'm not entirely convinced, you know, that Dutton is the right person to do it. Plus, of course, all he'll do is dial up fear to, you know, 11 because you know, he can Look, push as someone forward. who works in the social services area, like it's it's, and my activism is, is certainly in the disability space. It's certainly something that we're concerned about, or I'm concerned about. It's it's kind of what will happen to the NDIS. To you know, Centrelink is already a disaster, and mm. you know the NDIS is is kind of needs a whole bunch of support and reform. And the idea of what conservatives will do for that, I'm I worry about a great deal. And but I also think that again, go back going back to that thing about where Australians sit. Australians don't like that stuff. Australians really like public services, and they like spending on health and <clears throat> and education and the NDIS. And so, the idea that uh, Dutton will get mileage by cutting any of that stuff. And I think um, I think it kind of worked for the Liberal Party up until now. Not not good enough for them to actually be in a winning position, but close to winning, that you had Turnbull as the more friendly, softer face as Prime Minister, while you had people like Dutton and Morrison and Porter and Alan Tudge being the bad guys. And, you know, I'm sure Dutton as Prime Minister would look to dial up the fear, but they've been dialing up the fear for a while, you know, like despite... Uh, Turnbull has tried to keep himself out of it, but, um, and 
I don't know. There's a few pictures with him with you know soldiers with guns behind him more recently. Sure, but he wasn't doing the you know look at my ten flags. Yeah, (laughs) not in the same way that Abbott or Dutton. No, very true. Um, So I think that is really interesting. One scenario I'm curious about is kind of the uh, the 2003 Labor scenario where so Morrison today has very publicly sort of stood behind. Turnbull and when he was asked whether he supported him he put his arm around him and said he's my leader and you know I wonder if there's a scenario where Dutton looks strong and the moderates say to Turnbull you need to step down and endorse Morrison as your successor Mm. uh, which is kind of what Crean did to see off Beasley and bring in Latham Mm. Um, and I could imagine that working and in that scenario Morrison doesn't doesn't look like he's stabbed Turnbull in the back. He's able to to be considered credible and loyal. And um, I think that is possibly the best case scenario for them right now. Um, in which case, I don't really know what that looks like. Whether, whether, whether a Morrison who's managed to kind of come through the process looking relatively clean and become leader as a, as a more conservative figure but not as nasty as Dutton... Um, but then what would happen to those conservative members? And I think that's where we get back to the shape of the modern Liberal Party is actually yeah. their, their membership, their base, as they call their base, uh, is much more conservative than the general Australian public. And so uh, there's that, that kind of tension between the membership and what the membership wants and what will win an election. And I think that that depends on what choices that, what choice they make between those two things. I don't think Turnbull's leadership is sustainable now. No, I don't think it is at all sustainable. I think it's, it's essentially finished. It's a question of when it will actually yeah. finish. Um, you know, it might be an election in October if he can get that far. And I suspect he can't actually get mm. that far. Um, even if he was, I was asked this question earlier today, and it was really, a, for me, it becomes a question of, well, even if he could struggle on, what we're going to see is policy paralysis mm. in actual fact from the government. They will not be able to do anything. Whatever legislations in Parliament will run its course, they will negotiate with the backbench or with the or with the crossbench as best they can. But there's no new initiatives will necessarily come up. You know, it'll be small stuff if you like, in preparation for an election. And eventually people will say, well, what's the government actually doing? Then I'll be forced to an election just on the basis that they're not actually doing anything. And the crossbench itself will start to get quite cranky as well. We are obviously going to come back to this topic. I'm sure that there will be more developments uh, for our next episode. We're going to move on to discussing the feature seat for this episode, which is the federal seat of Lindsay. Uh, This seat is held by Labor's Emma Hussar, who recently announced she would not seek re-election after an investigation into her workplace behaviour burst into the public spotlight. Uh, Hussar was elected in 2016. It's the first time in the seat's 32-year history that it wasn't won by the party that formed government. Uh, Lindsay covers, basically covers Penrith in Western Sydney and has developed a reputation as the quintessential marginal seat, the, the marginal seat that uh, the political class thinks of when they think of marginals. Uh, the Lindsay test became this sort of iconic symbol of um, the Labor right not wanting to move too far to the left and saying, you know, does this, does this issue pass the Lindsay test? So, uh, Elle, what do you find most interesting about Lindsay? So I think the Lindsay's interesting because it is probably one of the whitest bits of Western Sydney and uh, where English is the primary language uh, spoken at home. It's younger than a lot of Western Sydney seats. 
Um, Penrith people think of themselves as very separate from a lot of Western Sydney. Um, it's a very aspirational area, but it has a higher degree of trades uh, rather than uh, kind of university professionals or kind of into town. Uh, and it's an area that's really quite squeezed by the lack of infrastructure in Western Sydney. So the Western Line is at whatever it is, 3,000 over percent uh, capacity, uh, as I you know see, see every morning. And it's basically you know become standing room only from kind of Blacksland now. And it's a very overstretched area. There is an enormous amount of increased in housing that's happened out there. Uh, and so it's an area that's changing a lot, but. Um, it's quite a proud area as well and I think that it always amuses me a lot that, to see journalists from the city going, you know, oh, we'll go out to Westfield and Penrith and do a Vox Pop and that'll tell us a bit rather than actually investing time into it. So it's an area that has a quite a lot of, um, uh, I think, community spirit, they would call, and so there's a lot of local fundraising, uh, there's a lot of community activity, there's a lot of uh, community groups, uh, that kind of stuff, and there's a lot of activity around that. So it's been a place where, you know, clubs and uh, people feel a bit self-reliant and that kind of stuff. But at the same time, the infrastructure pressures are enormous. So the schools are very overcrowded. The PN Hospital, oh my God, uh, and uh, that's where the state government is pouring an enormous amount of resources into that. Um, there's a huge need for transport infrastructure, and again, the council's doing quite a lot of work on that. So the Penrith Council is enormous uh, and covers that area, but the uh, and that's held by Labor, I think. Uh, and then the Libs, uh, Stuart Ayres, holds the state seat. Uh, and yes, Emma, and people like Emma. People are really cranky about what's happened. Uh, she's very well liked in the area and people are pretty upset about particularly the factional stuff that's been going on with her. Well, she was a bit of a surprise win from talking to people in the Labor Party that she wasn't expected to be winning the seat. They didn't, they, it wasn't on their list of seats that they were hoping to win. Yep. Um, and in that sense, maybe, maybe wasn't fully prepared but is also someone who maybe reflects that community more than someone else who might be a more polished politician. So they have a really strong union council in a similar way to the mountains does um, so their union council is now a union and community council similar to ours and they do an awful lot of campaigning so they have been doing door knocking and stuff they did that for Emma and they've been doing it for the last year and so there's an enormous amount of work out there the penalty rate stuff really hits hard in that kind of seat and so I think um it, that's something that I think is underestimated in terms of that sort of community activity and uh, people look at Penrith as kind of like, oh, it's the Bogans out west, but it's actually a very proud, very active community that sort of has worked hard and they, they, they feel proud about that work that they've done. Your description and my impression from visiting at various times was it went to a meeting at St Mary's, I'm tremendously annoyed about having to travel. For two, it took me two hours to get there and an hour and a half to get back and I was going, and I sat around in a meeting for two hours doing nothing, going nowhere basically, but... Um, I walked down the main street, it's a Sunday morning, but I looked at the shops, I looked at them and thought, this reminds me of country towns, yeah. right? It's got a rural suburban feel to it. Uh, it also reminds me of places like Hunter Valley. Right? And for, to a lesser extent, the South Coast. The South Coast is its own little world. Um, so it had a very interesting feel to it. And at other times I've been out to Shalvey or out to Blacktown or wherever, I've been going, there's something that's dynamic out here that's not what you would necessarily expect. Certainly it's not the traditional Westy type thing. There's something different happens yeah. here. Yeah. 
Um, what that pans out as, though, I think is, well, you, I would expect you would get a relatively, not overly conservative, but conservative Labor, right? Yes. Um, and that's the kind of candidate that's going to be a winner there, um, that a inner-city so, in lefty is not going to cut no, it. No, so Karen McEwen <clears throat> is the Labor candidate for the state seat of Penrith. Uh, she's a former mayor, um, and she's, uh, yeah, she's been on council for a long time. She's been, she's a, you know, a very Penrith person. And it's, uh, she's, I mean, I, I know Karen, so she's, um, and she's similar to Emma in just kind of like, she's a very practical you know, person from from the west, and it's it's. Uh, I think that that stuff about a small town. That's how people in Penrith talk about Penrith. That it's kind of it's a it's our town, and they see themselves as quite separate from the rest of Western Sydney and from Sydney itself. And it's like, oh, it's so good to be home. You know, like we're here, we're we're home by the river, and it's it's a really different thing. And something that's been in the local paper, there's a, a guy who wants to build a hundred million dollar ski centre out in Penrith. And everyone's very excited about it. Mm. And it's kind of like, well, of course he wants to do it in Penrith. Why not? And uh, so it's a really interesting thing in terms of how much that stuff is changing. And about half the seat is rural still. Um, but if you know, if you've been out there recently on the on near Penrith Station, there are now high-rise flats and there are terrace houses and loft apartments and mm. that kind of stuff. So for people in Sydney who, who kind of still think of Penrith as kind of it's the land of the huge houses and that kind of stuff, it's not like that and it hasn't been like that for sort of 10 the years. Other thing, the other thing that struck me um, about St Mary's and just walking down the street because um, you, you can gain a lot by looking at saying how many of these shops are closed, like not just closed down but shuttered and permanently, and actually it wasn't so bad. It did not look, uh, it, it didn't, it looked a bit sparse, but didn't look downtrodden, mm. right? There was none of that sense, you know, that the, uh, I've been to other parts of Sydney where you've had the real sense of downtrodden. And there it actually was different. This is, this is what struck me so much about it. And I'm going, well, this isn't like going to Macquarie Fields, no. right? Well, this is something I found interesting when I was looking at the demographic data that, uh, you know, it's a it's it's an area like you said where there's a there's a lot less professionals and a lot more people who work in what would be considered blue collar professions. Um, but it's actually above the state and national median for income. Yep. It's not a poor community. I'm sure there are poor suburbs in that area, but and in that way, I'm, I mean, I'm more familiar with Campbelltown myself. But you you find diversity within these within these areas. You have quite wealthy suburbs and poorer suburbs. But I, I find it interesting that the, the concept of the aspirational voter or the mortgage belt, which were terms about 10 years ago that were very popular, seem perfectly tailored to a seat like Lindsay, where you, mm. I would imagine you still have a lot of people with mortgages, um, big mm. burdens like that. Um, I, uh, yeah, I, I would imagine that you have that kind of voter who sometimes will vote for Labor, but um, the, that... Uh, particularly concerned about economic issues. Like yeah, that. and that's, as I said, why why things like campaigning on penalty rates has been something that has been so incredibly strong and people have been literally door knocking there for a year and holding street stalls and doing that stuff because it's exactly that, because for blue collar people, you know, who are working in those kind of jobs, penalty rates is enormously important. Um, but I do think with the whole aspirational stuff, yes, but people don't aspire to leave Penrith. Mm. Like one of the reasons that, that people are really happy that those kind of apartments and things have been built there is so that the kids can be in an apartment. They don't have to move to the city, they don't have to go anywhere else. They can stay mm. in Penrith, mm. you know, <laughs> and that's, 
that's what people want to do. They don't want to go anywhere else. And I think um, the sort of sneering at Penrith and the sneering at Lindsay that sometimes happens uh, from people in the city, I find difficult to... Cause it just means that they don't know what it's like. And, uh, and it's also... Um, it doesn't reflect the people there. Like, you know, there's an enormous arts centre, there's a really active kind of arts community, um, there's a very active community, the, the council is huge, the, you know, there's a big library, there's lots of community facilities and that kind of stuff at a local level that are provided by the local community. And I think that that's where um, there's no big museums and there's none of that sort of stuff that's in the city, but there's a lot of vibrant kind of cultural life. Mm. Uh, in there that isn't reflected by a Vox Pop at Westfield. <laughs> well, also, it, it's um, Westfield's are always a bad place to try and do those sorts of things because you get a very particular... But they are air-conditioned, which is nice in the summer. <laughs> exactly. Um, but then people who go there are going to be people who don't have air conditioning, who can't afford any luxuries, and so you're going to get a very particular subset. Um, it suggests, of course, that our perceptions of what... Uh, what a working class person or what a person who is in the West, um, and that can be the West or the East in Perth or the West in, in Melbourne, um, are, some of our perceptions about what those people are has actually shifted from, say, 50 years ago. And, of course, 50 years ago, the West was a bit closer and Penrith would have been a, a country town, quite literally. Um, but nonetheless, the perceptions of them has actually you know, shifted. It's to me, to, from you, again, from your description and from the people that I've known who've come from Lindsay, uh, they actually remind me much more of people from the South Coast in terms of people from the South Coast, the communities there were really strong, still are in some parts. Strong communities, they'll build their own damn hospital if they have to and they'll fundraise for that. <clears throat> they are quite capable of being community-minded in a way, a different way to how it operates within the, an inner urban area, which has very high population densities. There, there's actually a little bit of space. You've got the space to, you know, God, God forbid that we should say this, you can have the cricket match in your backyard. <laughs> but those cricket matches in backyards bring all the kids from all around. Yes. So you've got community, families, you've got people getting together, so you actually have something operating there that is different from people being stuck yeah. in high rise. So, for example, I used to work for the community <laughs> transport. So the community transport that runs through Nepean and Blue Mountains. And uh, they would fundraise in the local community to buy them vans and cars and that kind of stuff so that they could drive people to the hospital for cancer treatment and take <coughs> oldies to the pool for their hydrotherapy and all of that kind of stuff. And it was a really important thing. And every year they'd do a huge big fundraiser so that the community transport could have new vehicles and do those kind of things. And that was something that um, I was really impressed by, that the community was just like, well, of course we're going to do that. And those sort of things like, you know, being part of the RFS and the community fires and all of those sort of things, yeah. that those rural aspects are still in Penrith, uh, even though there has been this, this sort of arrival of inner city kind of housing at the same time, it, it still has kept that slightly rural uh, sort of feel to it. Um, but I also think that people get the shits, and, and rightly, about being underestimated and being sort of labelled in a particular way, and I think that that's unfair. So it's a, it's a very close seat um, based on the last election. Uh, so Emma Hussar polled 51.1% after preferences, um, and uh, we don't really have a good sense of how that will go this time. Like, on the one hand... Labor is up generally in the national polls, and I think it's entirely possible that a new Labor candidate can win, but we don't know what impact either people being annoyed at her but also being annoyed at the Labor Party for um, the perceptions of how she's been treated. 
um, might have might have on the Labor vote. We don't really have a sense of that, but it does suggest that this is a seat that could very well be in play and could mm. go either way. Yeah. I'm really interested to look at, like, you look at the map of the electorate and um, uh, you were talking a lot, Stuart, about St Mary's, which is at the eastern end of the electorate. Uh, you're almost getting into the Blacktown area mm. at that point. And that is the solid Labor part of the mm. electorate. It's yeah. the, 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 I would guess, the poorer part of the electorate. And then at the uh, at the western end, where you're almost getting into the Blue Mountains, where you have Emu Plains, places like that. That's all right. Yeah, most of those booths went for the Liberal Party. Same in the mountains. So when you get into Macquarie, which is when you get to sort of Glenbrook, <laughs> Blacksland, that kind of stuff, that is also very Liberal booths. And uh, that's the Conservative end of Macquarie, as well as the, the Hawkesbury. Yeah. So it's going to be a very interesting seat to to watch uh, when the next election comes along, and we're going to be we're going to be paying a lot of attention to it. It's it's going to be a very interesting seat to watch at the next election, and if you're interested, we will link to uh, the Tally Rooms guide to the seat of Lindsay, and you're welcome to join in the conversation on that seat. At the moment, there's 38 comments of people discussing the seat of Lindsay, um, and uh, I'm sure it's going to be one to watch when the election comes along. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you to both Stuart and Elle for joining me. Stuart, where can people find you online? They can find me online at Sydney University, uh, the Department of Government and International Relations. I have a little space there. Fancy. Oh, not really. It's not a fancy page. But certainly, you know, I have a profile there. Uh, they can email me at the university. It's easy to get hold of me that way. Great. And Elle? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Blunt Shovels uh, because I'm known to be slightly blunt. And, uh, uh, yeah, that's the best way to find me. Great. So you can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. That really helps other people find the show. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. Information about this podcast is available at www.tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thank you to Krista Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode. And once again, thanks for listening.